his part in accomplishing the organization's goals, but who spends his time boasting in the fact that he got picked over others who got cut. That's ugly. That man, that woman, that rookie is proud, and if there is no thanks or no appreciation, one wonders if he's going to care more for his agenda than the organization's. What good is a man who's too busy thinking about himself if he's supposed to play a part in the team? You don't have to know anything about ball teams to know this kind of pride. It can also be seen at the dinner table, perhaps even at mine, or maybe at yours. When a family gathers at dinner time and the father asks, who would like to give thanks to God for his gracious provision to us in his food, in this food? Well, it's not surprising to hear that same child who volunteered to thank God for his grace turns around and boasts over his siblings of the fact that they didn't get chosen. And it goes to show how much pride is woven into the very fabric of the human heart. The sin of pride is in all of us. And our passage today in Romans chapter 11, verse 11 to 24, it warns Christians, that is Christians, that is us, of the danger of such pride. Right? We're not supposed to be thinking here when we read this, you know, there's pride that exists out there, the danger that exists out here. No. It's very clear, as we're going to see shortly, that this danger is in here. Pride can eventually lose sight of God and His grace. I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 11, verse 11 to 24. It can be found on page 947 in that black speed Bible right there in front of you. And we, of course, are in the book of Romans once again. We're just simply walking through the book of Romans. And this was written by Paul the Apostle, a man chosen by Jesus Christ to lay the foundation for Christ's church. He does this through the preaching, the heralding of the gospel, writing a letter that explains the gospel. Now, this letter here was written to Roman Christians in the mid-50s AD. Now, Paul had never been to Rome, but he knew some of the Christians in the church of Rome. And so he writes them. And so naturally, as he's never been there, he writes explaining what the gospel is. The gospel that they shared, the gospel that they both believe in, the gospel that both that saved them both in the gospel. Which Rome is a partner in as he takes the gospel to Spain. Where the gospel had not yet been preached. That's what it says there in Romans chapter 1. Regarding this gospel, in Romans chapter 1, it says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile world, and the non Jews. Think of, you know, back then the Jewish world, they understood there's the Jews, and then all others, which were basically the Gentiles. So here Paul says the gospel is for everybody, to the ends of the earth, to the Jew first, and then also to the Gentiles. But here's the issue. Of course, in Paul's day, and I think even in our day, the vast majority of Jews rejected Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. But the good news is that where God makes a promise, he never fails to keep it. Even the majority of ethnic Jews rejected Jesus, God had chosen a remnant who would, in fact, one day believe on Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul himself was already seeing this happen. He himself was a Jew, evidence, an example of being part of the remnant. Not only that, though, but in the book of Acts, you see thousands of Jews who were living in the Mediterranean world come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 
see it unfold before his very eyes. The remnant of God amongst the Jews are being saved. But while they were being saved, other veterans who had rejected Jesus, they were in fact being judged. Let's look there at Romans chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. It says there that God blinded them for their own sin, their own rejection. Summary of where we're at now. Here's the deal as it relates to pride and our passage today. Though the Gentile Christians were in fact chosen by grace, they gloated over those who were not. And they're looking at the Jews who were judged, and they're gloating over them. And so Paul issues this sobering rebuke and warning. And our passage simply reminds us main point here under the sovereign grace of God in Christ. There is never room for pride. Really simple. Under the sovereign grace of God, there is never room for pride. Follow along as I read Romans chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. So I ask, did they, that is, the unbelieving Jews, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and that their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? The dough offered as first fruits is holy, so the whole lump, and as the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a while olive tree, were grafted in among others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember that it is not you who support the root, but the root root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off, so that I might be grafted in. That is true, they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. What then the kindness and severity of God? Severity towards those who have fallen for God's kindness to you, providing you continually his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, they do not continue in their unbelief will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will be the natural branches be grafted back in them? Their own olive tree. You hear where Paul ends up there in verse 18. Do not be arrogant. Verse 20. Do not be proud. You see there again the, the objection. Paul anticipates that they would throw up, throw out in verse 19. Then you will say that they were broken off, so I would be dropped in. So here what Paul is doing in this section is addressing this notion of superiority and inferiority. It's a great misunderstanding to think that those who are brought into salvation are superior over those who are judged, or over those who those who don't believe. These non-believing Jews were broken off and 
grace of God. There is no room for pride. Never, ever is there room for pride. Our passage begins reminding us that no one, point number one, no one is ever beyond God's saving grace. Point number one, no one is ever beyond God's saving grace. Right? The Gentiles thought, the Gentile Christians thought that the Jews were beyond God's saving grace. And so look there in verse 11. He says there, so I ask, did they stumble? In other words, did they sin? Did they fail? Did they stumble in order that they might fall? Fall as in they're too far gone to be saved. They are out of reach of God's grace because of their sin, right? So he's getting at this issue, right? Some people were thinking, perhaps, that God broke them off forever. They're too far gone. But Paul gives that. Is it by no means? He just... Simple answer. Absolutely not. The reason why they had not fallen beyond God's saving grace is because God had a plan for them. In verses 11 to 12. And his plan had not yet come to completion. So here's the thing. The Gentile Christians were supposed to appreciate God and his plan for the Jews and the Jews themselves. First, Paul says there, it, 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 it's only because of God's plan for the Jews that you partake of God's salvation in the first place. Right, so just imagine, now, now today, there may be some racist Christians. There are, in fact, some racist supposedly Christians. And these supposed Christians might boast over others and think, you're too far gone because of so many different reasons. And that, I think, is what the Gentiles are tempted to think. So the Jews, for example, in the book of Romans, we know that they were basically proud in their own self, right? They are you dirty Gentiles over there who don't have the law of God. You're not of the people of God. You don't have the promises of God. You too are too far gone, you Gentiles there. God's wrath is being revealed against you, against all of godliness and the unrighteousness of men. Ha! That's why. Here too, that pride is so endemic to the human heart that even the Gentiles are most likely while the Gentiles in their self-righteousness thought, that, sorry, while the Jews were so self-righteous, they judged the Gentiles to be too far gone. They didn't have the law. The Gentiles, well, there's, a, there's different reasons for why they might judge the Jews of the Jews in certain ways. The Jews, they kind of had this elitism about themselves. They were very separate in the Roman culture. They had their own laws. They had their own kings. And they distanced themselves from all of the dirty Jews, from all the dirty Gentiles. And so the Gentiles naturally would be looking towards them with hostility, just as the Jews were looking towards them with hostility. And I think he gets take self pride, he gets pride. So here Paul says you're supposed to appreciate them because God has a plan for them. Right? He says this is only because of God's plan for the Jews that you partake of salvation in the first place. Verse 11, look there. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall by no means, rather through their trespass? Salvation has come to you, Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass, their sin, their rejection of Jesus, means riches for the world, that's salvation for the Gentiles. And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, parallel, parallel, how much more will their full inclusion mean? He's getting at the look of God's plan throughout the ages for these people. It's not supposed to cultivate pride in this election. It's not supposed to cultivate pride. 
the Gentile hearts supposed to move them to desire something interesting to please him. These branches, these unbelieving Jews who are rejected Christ, these Gentiles, they move towards them in love. Only the most self-righteous will gloat over the have-nots, right? That's what the Gentiles are simply doing. And only the self-righteous gloat over the unrighteous. The second thing Paul says here, the second thing Paul says here is that God is not done with the Jews. Right? He's getting them, he's trying to get them to appreciate God's plan and the Jews themselves. He says there, if you think you have experienced blessings so far, you Gentile believers, which is us, he says, just wait, just wait until all of God's elect among the Jews are saved. Look at verse 12. If their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion, literally their fullness, be? He leaves us hanging here, but then he explains what it means here in verses. Go ahead and look at verse 15. Paul's logic moves from the lesser things to the greater things. The lesser things to the greater things, right? The lesser things, though still great, think about Paul's logic, even if he was in the hardest the lesser thing, though still great, is salvation to the Gentiles. Right? We here, if you're not a Jew, we experience this riches, right? Their trespass means our blessing. Right? We we experience salvation here in God's salvation plan. The doors of salvation have been opened. Why? Which is for the poor. But then the greater If their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? That is their repentance of faith, their belief in. In Jesus Christ, what their acceptance be what life under that. Now you might wonder, as I have, what exactly is this blessing of life under that? This is the greater thing that we're supposed to understand, so we would do best to understand what this is. It says their their acceptance will be life from the dead. Seems like he's actually talking about the new age, right? The age to come. That is marked by the absolute reign of Jesus Christ, where his righteousness is made known among his universe. That's what he's talking about there, I think. It's summarized here by life from the dead, physical resurrection. So this term, life from the dead, or of the dead, of the 44 times it's used in English, of the dead, in our Bible, 42 of them refer to physical resurrection. Two of them refer to some sort of spiritual life. I think actually here it makes sense to think that this here is talking about physical resurrection. When the full inclusion of God's elect among the Jews are brought into the people of God, then will be Salvation plan. 
then salvation turns to the Gentiles, and then the fullness of the Gentiles, that is us, we're part of that. The fullness of the Gentiles is being worked in, and we know that he has that on his mind. Look there in verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, a partial hardening which come upon all Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles come has come in. That's a plot point here. He's thinking about the fullness there. And in this fullness, right, that the Gentiles are coming to faith. See that Isaiah's prophecies from Isaiah are being fulfilled. Prophecies from the, the Psalms are being fulfilled. Psalms Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 11. And then when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, then Now, if you were the adopted little brother, adopted by the Father, brought to share in the feast of God's grace, who, who gloats over those who don't receive? See what he's getting at here? If you care at all about your benevolent Father's plan to save so many by grace, just as you have been saved, Right, you, you come to the table recognizing that we all deserve judgment, as Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3 state so incredibly. You know God's grace has brought you to the table, all by his divine sovereign choice and his mercy. You appreciate not only because of the benefits that you receive, not only because of the benefits of others who join the feast, but because that By the way, when it says there, full inclusion, right? What does that full inclusion Should we expect one day to see every single Jew saved? Every single Jew confess Jesus Christ, right? And some people might think that when they say full inclusion, clearly all of these fullness, that's what the word means. And then you couple that with verse 26 there, and in this way all Israel will be saved. Right? Some people think that they should expect every single Jew on the planet at some point in time will come to know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior and bow their knee to him. But I don't think that's what it means. We already know from Romans chapter 7, Paul has always said that not all Israel is Israel, right? So he already is using these words, Israel and Israel, in two different ways. There could be national Israel. But we know that even in national Israel, not all Israel is Israel, there's some of Israel that are his true his true spiritual children. Some were judged, but others were saved. We know from Romans chapter 11, 11 chapter 5, or sorry, chapter 11, verse 5, that we know that there is a remnant, a chosen group among all ethnic Israel. So what he says that all Israel was saved at the very least, at the very least, we should treat all Israel as all of the elect of Israel. I personally think it means all of the elect among the Jews and all of the elect general. Uh, so going back to fullness here, we should just think the many that God has elected. Okay, application. Application. Notice here that this idea of election should never, never cultivate pride. Never. Some of you guys who might be new exploring this idea of election, you can instantly say, well, that automatically is going to cause pride. 
just like that maybe is going to cause no evangelism if you believe in this idea of election, but not for Paul. <laughs> Paul here, he's rebuking them, and he, and he says there, Note the kindness and severity of God, severity to those who have fallen from God's kindness to you, provided you continue with his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. That is a stern rebuke to the elect Gentiles, or those who are showing themselves. So it never should cultivate any sort of pride. It certainly wasn't to cultivate pride in these elite Gentiles. Paul himself is not gloating over the needy. Instead, what does Paul do here? Verse 13. He's not gloating and boasting over those who don't have salvation. He has a heart to them. He labors towards seeing them saved. He says there in verse 13, he says there that he was magnifying his ministry in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them, magnify them. I labor. Hard. That's what it means there when it says I magnify. He has a heart towards them. He's not gloating over them. He's not writing them off. As we know, he ministered in the synagogue, reasoning with Jews from the scripture that Jesus is God's Messiah. And so he, there's no idea of a heartless, proud, frozen chosen. He labors, he ministers, he evangelizes compelled by love and then reap the results of God. Election, according to the Bible, is not to cultivate pride, it actually cultivates humility and love and perseverance. A love even that moves us to evangelize, knowing that God intends to save some from every tribe and tongue and nation. And write anyone. Now if you're wondering, you say, oh, well, Paul is a Jew, he's ministering to Jews, of course he's ministering to them. Or he's going to want them to say, well, Christ is actually holding himself out as an example to Gentiles, wanting their hearts to be moved towards these Jews that will be saved. And this gospel driven love and humility is striking. It is striking. Think about all the differences between the Jews and the Gentiles, which you could think too, all the differences between whites and blacks and Asians and Hispanic and on and on and on. Right? Remember that the Jews. We're already against Gentiles originally. And the Gentiles were very much against the Jews, so tensions were really high. Hostilities between both groups went back hundreds of years. Imagine the bad blood. But yet here is Paul saying, look at what God is doing among those you historically hate. Look at the plan of God and the cross of Christ. God loves them, and you should too. Says I too labor to see the Jews saved. He says that God loves Jews and Jews I think this, in some ways, right, this tradition of hostility, pigmentiness, uh, actually, in some ways, is a preface to what comes in Romans chapter twelve and thirteen. I mean, he speaks about brotherly love. Like you think they would need to hear something about brotherly love, given all the hostilities they had. He thinks about how do you relate to other brothers who might think one thing is a sin. Think the Jews who are literally going to let go of the Old Testament, or at least their legalistic, ritualistic understanding of it. He's telling the Jews, the, the Jews to get along with the Gentiles, and the Gentiles to get along with the Jews in the Church of God. But in Romans chapter eleven, talking about how to cultivate the Gentile Christian heart towards non-believing Jews, those who are outside. Church, let me be clear. 
or culture or race or ethnicity should ever be written off. Because we already know that God has determined to save some from every nation, from every tribe, every color, every language. Now, I'm sure that you acknowledge that in your mind. But do you acknowledge that? Like, do you affirm that in your actions? You know, we know that God determines to save some from every tribe, tongue, and language. But do you affirm that with your actions? Take a mental survey right now of who you are seeking to love. Right, think about all the people that God has placed you around your work environment, the places where you do business, the people that you live around, people that you have regular interaction with. Right? So if you friend, are surrounded by a multi-ethnic people at work, and I say it because I see some of those might not be a certain nuance to do, but if you are surrounded by a multi-ethnic people, do you figure that you would be loving them all for Christ? Without discrimination. Right, it's one thing to affirm mentally, thinking, yeah, great, God's going to do what he does, but he's going to do that over there. It's another thing to pray that God will use you, Christian, to bring the good news to everyone around you. Now, some of you all, when God saved you, right, you were saved from a prejudiced, racist background. I know that because I've spoken to you. I've spoken to you about my own my own issues. And maybe you were prejudiced, whether out of response to other people's sin, right, so you were the victim. Maybe you were prejudiced, and maybe you are racist also because you were the victim vicer. If that's you, I'm guessing you still need to work through some of the issues that you have. Grace of God, he saved all types of sinners, so we shouldn't be uh, surprised to see racist people come to faith and need to continue to work on those things. Right? Sanctification takes a long time, so we shouldn't expect people to be confessing difficult issues. We have some ill will to the church and be submitting those things towards God. Asking God and going to the Spirit and God to protect us and change us. Friends, praise God, you are in fact saved, and praise God, God will continue to grow us in Jesus Christ. And you know a wonderful way to grow in your love for those outside of the church who are different than it's actually to grow in your love for those who are different from you inside of the church. Okay, so if you want to love those who are different from you outside of the church, you know you've got issues, you know that Jesus already wants us to do that. But friends, let me encourage you to start with those inside of the church. Let me encourage you to spend more time with someone from that culture that you might not understand so well and learn to identify with them. Learn to identify with them. Take time. What's on your brother or sister's heart? And ask them what issues that they've had to wrestle with and strive to have the gospel confront and inform their culture. Ask them ways in which it's difficult to have their culture be submitted to the gospel. You can ask them simply and hopefully. What is it like to be a Chinese American Christian here in this country? Or more generally, like, what's it like to be black? What's it like to be an African American in this church? Hispanic, Mexican American in this church? You know, we could go on and on. You guys, and what's it like to be a German American? You have those in this church. Ask them if they have certain burdens in their community. What burdens do you, you neighbor, carry on your shoulders for your own people for the gospel's sake? 
also come to learn what it means to love others. But first and foremost, God wants you to need to. You need to be reconciled to God. Repent of your sins. Because you will be saved. And know this great love. Which is the human heart. To reconcile the love of God to the gospel. God has planned to save some from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Therefore, like Paul, we should learn to cultivate a love and appreciation for everyone. If God gives us the opportunity, we must be laboring for seeing someone saved. Point number one, wrap up here. No one is beyond God's saving grace. Point number two, all are in need of God's saving grace. All are in need of the saving grace. This is the very thing that the Gentile Christians forgot. If you are proud, here, right, if you struggle with pride, which I believe is all of us, this too is a thing that we forget. We too need God's saving grace. And Paul issues a stern rebuke and warning. To the little brother gloating over those who did not receive the call. Look there, 17 to 24. I'll go ahead. I'll go ahead and read that. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive tree, were grafted in among the others, and now sharing the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember that it is, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true, they were broken off because of their unbelief. You stand fast through faith. For do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness towards you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. Here Paul uses this imagery that he picks up in verse 16. He actually uses two things. You got like this, this metaphor of the dough, right? First fruits of the dough, uh, and then when others come in, the whole thing is holy, right? Holy unto God. And then he uses the imagery of the tree, which I think is simple enough. You got like the roots, which if you think about the Old Testament forefathers of the faith, you got Abraham, you got Isaac, you got Jacob, and all the promises of God given to them. Those are the roots, right? And then you have the branches, right? The branches are all those who come after the roots. That is all believing Jews. Or, or actually all the Jews who claim the name of God. We know that not all the Jews were believing here. But we're just going to say that they are the Jews who claim the name of God. They come after the forefathers. And then there are these shoots. Which Paul says here, there are wild olive shoots here. that they are, And they are grafted in. You guys know what the term grafted in means? Uh, those of you who might love, you know, let's say, fruit-bearing plants in your backyard or whatever have you plant in your backyard. If you were going to graft into into the okay, how about this? I got an apple tree, and if I want that one type of apple tree to be bearing multiple types of apples, what do I do? You know, it's not like average dad of the things bearing multiple different types of apples. No, you you go and grab a different type of apple tree, the branch, and you attach it to this other apple. And then soon that apple tree starts bearing different kinds of apples. That's what it's grafted in. Pretty simple concept, I do believe, you know. Uh, watch YouTube videos with that is. <laughs> As usual, right? It's simple enough. So while the Gentile Christians were to appreciate the Jews, they were to remember right, that they were merely grafted in. They were the wild ones. Grafted onto this plant. Pretty simple enough. They feed off the fatness of the root, the nourishing root of the olive tree, which was an emblem for Israel. 
So Paul rebukes them here, right? Don't be arrogant, verse 20. Don't be proud. And then 18 and 22, Paul gives three truths that remind them and warn them not to be proud. Be proud is not proud. You are three truths that remind them why they should not be and warn them why they should not be. First, look there at 18. Remember, it is, it is not you who support the root, but we that support you. He's just talking about dependence here. Right? The small little brother thinks that he's, you know, he's everything that there is. The most wonderful child there is, and, and he sort of rebukes them here. He very much rebukes them. He says, no, you are dependent among those those who come before you, the forefathers of the faith. They were Hebrews. They were Jews. Right? That'll give you new categories if you're racist. Imagine a racist white man, for example, taking one of those DNA tests, which I want to take, and then realizing that some of his roots are actually African. Now, right there, the proud man might actually kill himself, but the humble man will actually appreciate that. He'll start thinking, whoa, that's my lineage. I should learn to appreciate that. Anyone with common sense will learn to appreciate their roots. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, look, you Gentile Christians, you depend on your history here. You stand on the shoulders of giants. Well, appreciate The second thing, he says, the very reason why they stand among people of faith, loved by God, receive the blessings of God, at the throne of grace by God, is because of faith. Look at 19. Paul anticipates the Gentile objection. They were broken off. Right? The branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. The answer there is 20. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But we can't fathom faith. The concept of faith here is to be a pride killer. How is faith a pride killer? Frankly, today, in some circles, faith is to be boasted. Faith today is seen so closely connected with believe in yourself and in what you want, isn't it? Right? And so, you have the song, you've got to keep the faith, right? To climb those challenging mountains in your life. And then maybe that you are as old as I am. You've just got to have faith in those tough times. Right? For many today, maybe to some here right now, faith is something everyone is born with. The problem is, though, that many bring this Christian, sorry, this non-Christian idea of faith to Christianity. When it comes to the Christian version of God, all we got to do is exercise the tool of faith to get God and the salvation stuff, right? We wield our faith in order to get God. Now, bring that understanding to this verse, of course, faith is not equal to a pride. That is kind of secular, even pagan idea of faith. That actually fuels pride, fuels faith that you receive. That's maybe the question. But friends, you see that Christian faith in the Bible should always be understood in relation to faith's object. Christian faith should always be understood in relation to in relation to faith's object. That is God. That is Christ. So Christian faith or believing automatically, according to the Bible, right? If you have it, if you're a Christian, there is a recognition and acknowledgement of who God is. He is our holy, great, who is man. He is God who is over us. He is God who owns us. He is God who is every single life and who will one day keep accountable for our sins. So believing with Christ, this type of faith comes with an acknowledgement of who God is. Believing in Christ is also it requires there to be an embracing as Christ as Savior. You need salvation. And so in belief, you 
save me. Maybe the first century Christian. Right? What does faith do for them? I mean, there you have the Son of God taken on flesh, and there you stand. I and the Father am one. You either believe it or you don't. You're not going to wield anything. You either submit to it or you don't. You either say, yes, I am a needy sinner, or you don't. Not in the sort of view of faith that you receive is foolish. You behold God. You behold God and you repent of your sins. And then you believe and you believe being saved. We're all in Adam. So therefore we cling to the second Adam. That is Jesus Christ. So I'm done with the first Adam here. Because he is God man. Faith in Christ also includes a submission to Christ as Lord. A submission to Christ as Lord. Right there again. Jesus stands right there. I am the Lord of the universe. I have authority to still the waters. I speak to inanimate objects and they listen to me. I forgive sin. That's how you get with God. Is it that he calls or commands us all to turn from our sins and believe on him? Maybe not. What happens? Well, we stand in our sin facing the judgment of God on our own. Christian faith is always understood in relation to faith on the second death of Christ. Now, in a Facebook group, I asked how many of us come from traditions where they're giving altar calls, and then they're saying sinners' prayers, which is what I came from. There, in this type of evangelism, where you're holding out that gospel and calling people to say a quick 30-second prayer, and then affirming people of their salvation, it has evacuated all content of who God is. Jesus stands there, and is like, what's what? Your friend, your buddy, your genie, who knows what it is? No concept of Lord? No concept of God over? No concept of accountability or sin or Savior? Biblical faith kills pride because it proclaims that there is nothing that God, that nothing that man can do to save himself. So therefore, it works. There is no room for pride for human works of salvation in biblical faith. Naturally so. Right? Our salvation requires God the Son to come to earth and even open our very I'm of the 
people. I am a Hebrew. But yet they were still blind, not saved, and stood amidst the condemnation of darkness. They saw the wrath of God being revealed against the pagans, and they delighted in it. In fact, they even used that occasion to establish their own self-righteousness. They looked down on the Gentiles as pagans and Friends, our pastor here, Paul Tilly, is trying to keep the Gentile Christians from going towards the same fate. Just as the self-righteous Jews presumed upon the kindness of God, right? He doesn't want the Gentile Christians to presume upon the kindness of God, and so therefore show that they were never Christians to begin with, okay? So let's be clear here. He's not saying that Christians can lose the, the, their salvation. If you're a Christian here today, you cannot lose your salvation. I don't think that's what's taught in the Bible here. He is saying, though, that if someone is cut off, it means they never had salvation in the first place. Just like the unbelieving Jews here, I think First John chapter one is really helpful. Go ahead and turn there. First John chapter one. Turn to the right. If you're sitting next to someone who doesn't uh, like to use the Bible, so I'm going to do that. First John chapter. Sorry, First John chapter two. First John chapter two. Here, Paul is. Uh, John is actually talking about those who have left their, the Christians. Right? They no longer believe in this Jesus. They don't love their brothers. They're not living according to God's commands. They claim a Jesus, but it's not the real Jesus. This is what he says there in verse 19, 219. It says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. You see the categories now? He has the categories very clearly of, the, of, of people being of the church, but then not really being of the church. Right? It's like sometimes there are people who claim to be Christians, and we do the best we can in terms of uh, ensuring that church membership is a regenerate church membership, that is, people who join the church really are Christians. But you know what? Sometimes, everybody, sometimes people just make a mistake. Or sometimes they won't are very sinful. And then they actually show themselves in their leaving, their departing, their abandoning. You have never really been part of the church in the first place. That's what he's talking about. But friends, just because you can't lose your salvation, don't let don't let that take away from the force of this warning. This warning is real. It's like a road sign that tells you and warns everybody: drive slow. There is a cliff, and if you continue going, you will indeed fall off and show yourself never have been a Christian in the first place. This warning is the road sign.
of the sinful proud heart that has eyes to saw man that these would be directed towards God. God. Oh no. God.
God's hand. No, those who God set to dwell upon and be called and do his will, he preach the word of the gospel. How is it that you are made to hear, next thing, the call to worship? Right? How is it, how is it that you are made to hear the call to worship? Or you actually want to do it? Because before, some of you guys were like Pharaoh, right? You're plugging your ears and running away. And you don't give a rip the nature of sin. You don't care at all for what God says because you're too busy worshiping yourselves. But somehow you hear something true. You hear this call to worship. You don't care. You just want to praise God. This is God's song. You think about the songs, right? We praise Him through song. And we gather around the throne. Participating once again in this heavenly worship going on right now. How is that that you proclaim Jesus? Is Lord. The Bible says you can't do that apart from the Spirit. You cannot. It's impossible. The Spirit of God is so strong that He works on our hearts and causes us to be born again with the Lord Jesus Christ. How, how is it that we hear the Word of God and actually want it and crave it? We want the Word of God as the light, the lamp that guides all of our paths. That we push out all the world's wisdom and say, No, Lord, give me your wisdom. Something. Respond to God in praying to Him, praising Him, confessing our sins, thanking Him, asking other. In all the prayers God wants us to be right. They are reminders that God is our true Father. He calls His people into His presence. Come with all of your cares and concerns to know Him and draw from the fountain of grace and forgiveness. Through the one Jesus is the Christ Jesus. And then in our confession of sin. Right? We like to end that with assurance of pardon for the word of God. We want to make sure that there is forgiveness. When we confess our sins and acknowledge our weakness, right? We just follow that up with an assurance of pardon. It is a verbal pardon that reverberates and echoes through all of the ages. Our Savior's sentence. It is that those who turn to Jesus Christ for repentance of faith have been washed and sanctified and justified and adopted and given the spirit, very spirit of God and who will in fact one day be glorified all of our sovereign salvation of God. And of course the good news the centerpiece of our service is large and is preached according to God's word. God sends out a spirit for teachers and preachers whereby his sheep are given the very food of nourishment where we are taught not to be faith but to behold as our Savior did for our going to sanctify The things that the elements of our corporate worship point to are explained in the preached word of God. And we see again God's kindness, our kindness in the gospel at hand. And in the Lord's Supper, which we've done it six times, so if you are a member of the church, we strongly encourage you to come and obey God's commands and participate in the Lord's Supper. We are reminded even of that in our senses of smell and taste that it is only by God's grace that we have tasted and seen that God is good. And together, as a family that has come this weekend together, we affirm and joyfully celebrate the fact that we have been made partakers of salvation, not through our own works, but through the shed blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we have been reminded once again.
Every Lord's Day throughout the year, throughout the decade, throughout the centuries, millennia, Christians gather together to do this again and again, to cease from our labors, and to remember again the work of God in life. That is the primary This is the main way that we as a congregation can remain together, survive together, fight with one another, one another place. gather together. As those who have been given God's grace, God forbid to gloat over those who refuse to what we have to But instead, pray that we would be moved to labor so that more would come to know God's grace, no matter who they are, no matter their ethnic, ethnic background or social economic position. Uh, we pray that God would help us labor among them, no matter who they are. Grace of God provide very much Therefore, we should never write anyone off of us all to be saved. We ought also remember that we too are all the hands of his Thank you. 